This morning, we are kicking back into Ephesians, and we are, um, the first half of Ephesians, it's actually a perfect breakdown, um, talks about doctrine and theology. Well, it's all theology, but doctrine, who we are in Christ, uh, it's imperative, uh, it's indicatives, rather, who we are, um, and that's chapters one through three, we call that union with Christ. And the second half of the book, it just, it perfectly, you know, works out, um, really is just about how we live. It's the ethics. Um, it's the imperatives. And so we're calling it Glorious Church. And our text this morning is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Um, if you have a pew Bible, it's on page 568. So Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 16. As you're turning, I will pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we have the privilege of hearing your word, and I pray that we would go beyond just being hearers. Lord, that we would receive and that we would respond, that we would be doers of your word. I thank you that as your word um, we'll talk about this morning, it's about the church. It's about how we relate, not just to you, but to one another. And I pray that you would meet us wherever we are. Maybe we are uh, long-standing members here, and we feel we know lots of people. Or we, maybe we're brand new. Maybe things are going well. Maybe there's pain that we're that we're dealing with from uh, church interaction, church hurt, or what have you. Lord, wherever we are, I pray you meet us with your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter four, verse one. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism." one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led host, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to our mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word. 
as I said earlier, we have studied um, Paul's great doctrines of who God is, who Jesus is, what he's done for us, who we are in him, our union in Jesus Christ. And uh, this morning we kick off this section where we study the ethics. How do we relate to one another? Uh, how do we grow together as a church body? Um, and as such, Paul talks about, in verse 1, he mentions this main imperative. This is the main imperative that kind of frames everything else he's about to say in the rest of the book. And he says, the imperative is, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And um, he's, he's framing for us everything else he's about to say. So to, that, to the title of today's message and our points today, um, number one, uh, well, the, the title, The Maturing, the maturing Church. Uh, we're, again, we're talking about the glorious church as our sermon series. And there's three aspects of a maturing church here. There's a character of unity. There's the means of unity and the purpose of unity. The character, the means, and the purpose. So what does Paul say about the character of unity? As I was studying the text and just thinking about what Paul is saying, I was really struck by the fact that the first thing that Paul is saying, okay, you've received this amazing calling from, from God given to you by the Holy Spirit. Now, here is what you need to do. I mean, what, would, what should follow that? What, what should be the first thing? I mean, the first thing, maybe the first thing should be you really need to be disciplined in your uh, personal devotions. That's what you, if you're going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, that's the first thing. But notice what Paul says is the first thing. He talks about humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, maintaining unity. What's going on there? Why is he saying that? Well, on a surface level, I mean, we could easily just conclude here that our, our spiritual disciplines, you know, prayer and reading the Word, those are means to an end. And he's actually telling us what some of those ends are. It's, it's to become more like Jesus, to be more humble, to be more patient, to have more gentleness, to bear with one another. And if we remember what we learned about this letter and about the people to whom he's talking, Paul is talking, obviously it's written to the people in Ephesus, the, the Christians in Ephesus. But this was a letter that was circulated in, through an entire region. And so you can imagine there are congregations that are certainly diverse in a lot of different ways. And Paul's making the case that as Gentiles who in the natural are enemies with Jews, God has reconciled together in Jesus Christ. And so we get this picture of the body where people who are culturally different, different in every way in expression and opinion, now are part of one body. Now, what the makeup and percentage of, you know, Jews or Gentiles in these different churches, we don't know that. But the point is, is Paul's giving to us all the building blocks of how we can do life as a church, as a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church. How do you do that? How do you bring baby boomers and Gen Z all together in one body? How do we bring 
internationals and Americans and people of different ethnic backgrounds. How does that work? Well, here's the answer. And in fact, not only is this the answer, this is what Paul is saying is in order to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, this is what you have to do. You have to be gentle. You have to, you have to be patient. You have to bear with one another. Why is that? Well, I can think about several examples. Um, the first student that I felt the Lord calling me to disciple back when I was a campus minister at Duke University, which is my alma mater. Um, that was a growing opportunity for me. Uh, let's see, how can I describe? And, 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 I, and I really, you know, love this brother. Um, but there was definitely some social awkwardness. Um, he really liked to talk about himself, like, a lot. Um, he was telling people on campus... He was giving three different names for people to call him, um, so that was interesting. And uh, yeah, and then he, and then you know, there were a lot of sad things. He hated his dad, um, and so yeah, there was just this package of stuff that the Lord was working out in his life, and the and called me to help mentor him and disciple him. And it took a lot of patience. It took a lot of gentleness, a lot of listening. I mean, I meet with him, and I f felt like he did more talking than I did. And, I, I, and at times, am I helping him? I mean, he's telling me more stuff. I'm not really telling him things. Or I think about how, for example, um, and another example, and I could give a lot of different ones, when Becca and I were in New York City, we knew this, um, this one. She was a graduate student, then graduated, and was a part of our church, and had grown up in one country, or was from one country, and her dad was a diplomat, and so she lived, she was Asian, but then her dad was a diplomat, and she lived in the Middle East, and then she was in New York City, so she's this third culture individual, and pretty much like every six months, six to eight, or you know, nine months or so, there was this internal clock in her that says, I got to get out of here, right? I've, I've known the people I've known long, long enough, it's time for me to move on, and, and, and so that whole relationship is centered around, not in total, but in a lot, a lot of ways, relax, you're okay. You can actually dig deeper. You know, you, there was a sense of she knew a lot of people broadly, but hardly anyone in, in any depth. And, and, and when, you, when you think about, like, where we all come from, some of us come from families that had very stable, you know, parents and everything. Some of us come from dysfunctional families. Some of us and our uh, upbringing and, and, and psychologists talk about attachment theory. You, you know, we knew what to expect, so we had good attachments with our parents, and that enabled us to uh, have healthy relationships as adults. But others of us grew up and we had poor attachments. And we're, we're, all, we're always kind of, um, you know, trying to protect ourselves. There's this self-preservation, and we take that into our church experience. And so when you look at a church body, you've got all the mix of all of these things, the ethnicity, the, 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 the you know, social economic uh, differences, the, the generational differences, the attachment differences, personality, so on and so forth. And so Paul gives us this imperative. If you want to live a life worthy of this amazing calling of what you have received, this calling of what Jesus has done to bridge the deepest divide in humanity and make a church, here is how you live. Humility. 
patience, gentleness, bearing with one another. By the way, bearing with one another, you notice that the object of the bearing with is not like one another's burdens, as when Paul talks in Galatians. It's actually one another. The word in, actually, it's, it's like things that make you annoyed, bear with, and he's saying, bear with one another. Be patient with each other. That's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And so if we think about this, if we think about that further, a church that's glorious, and and by that title, I really just summarize, I think, what Paul is getting at about how the church should be and operate and what Jesus is making it to be as he purifies his bride. The fact that there's differences doesn't disqualify us from glory. How about this? The fact that there's conflict doesn't disqualify us from glory. In fact, differences and conflict are an invitation. In fact, they are the means by which glory may come because the the Christian ethic, which is so countercultural, it's so upside down from the rest of the world, glory always comes from suffering. Jesus suffered and then he was glorified. Paul says that we enter into the kingdom through trials and tribulations. These these light and momentary sufferings will not compare to the glory that will outweigh them all. Suffering always precedes glory. And in fact, in God's amazing wisdom, he has put us together actually to allow us to suffer by bearing with and being patient with one another so that we may be a glorious church. And he further underscores this by saying, just as you were called to the one hope, the one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, one, you know, one body, one spirit. And Paul does something beautiful in that. He, he both gives us seven ones, a number of completion, and he organizes them around the three persons of the Trinity. Verse 4, body and spirit, the Holy Spirit, that we enter into the body. We've been given access, Paul talks about in chapter 2, by the one spirit. So verses 4, verse 4 rather, it's organized the unity of the Holy Spirit the body, the calling, and he himself. And then verse 5 is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, one Lord, one faith. Our faith is in him, one baptism, the, the expression of our faith in Jesus Christ, baptized in the name of Jesus. And then finally, the Father, God the Father. And so it's, you know, within that we see, we see, we see the diversity of the three persons, but the unity of the Godhead, and and that is a calling for us as a diverse people to be one in Christ, to have unity. Now, maybe you say, that sounds awesome, but I don't know how to do that. Or maybe you say, you know, I've, I've been in church for a long time, and it makes me tired sometimes. Or maybe you say, that bearing with, you know, there's some things or people that I'm bearing with, but I don't know how much longer I can go. Well, see, you need Paul's next point. You need his next point. 
The means of unity. Point number two, the means of unity. What are the means of unity? Well, Paul goes on to talk about that here, starting in verse 7. And he, he tells us right off the bat, it's grace. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So just from that we can learn, you have received grace. And that grace is not just the grace that saved you. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about life in the church. So we could, if we use the theological words, certainly it is grace. By grace, we're justified through faith in Jesus. But there's also grace in our sanctification, the process of how you live as a Christian. In other words, Christianity is so unlike any other religion. We don't just have a, a list of tenets to live. There's actually supernatural power to live it. You've been given grace. Different measures, but Jesus gives you what you need. Verse 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he let, host, um, uh, uh, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And then it go goes on and talks about the one who descended is the one who ascended. He's letting us know he's talking about Jesus. But it's a, it's a very interesting language. And what Paul is doing here, so in the ancient world, in the ancient world, when there would be battles and one king conquers uh, other nations, what would happen is instead of annihilating, completely wiping out those other nations, the victorious king would receive tribute, what was called a tribute from the losing sides, you know, side or sides, could be one or multiple. And the tribute is financial gift. It's basically, he's, it's basically like, listen, I beat you. I could wipe you out, but you know what? Just give me a gift, and we are cool. So you basically realize, okay, if you're one who's been defeated, it's either I give him something or he takes my life. I think I'll just give him some money or gold or whatever I have. Psalm 68, which Paul is basing this comment from, he says it, he, when he says, therefore it says in verse 8, he's referring back to Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is a psalm about God who is victorious. He is a victorious king. But what is interesting is that what Psalm 68 says, it says, like the kings in the metaphor where they defeat their enemies and they receive a tribute, it says that when he, is, he talks about how God descends on high and he leads, you know, host of captives, he receives gifts from men. Paul changes it. He changes it to, to and I, we, won't, we would spend the rest of today trying to, uh, going through all the different things that theologians have said over the centuries about this, this adjustment here. But certainly, it's, it fits within the framework of many of the New, Testa New Testament writers and how they adjust things to see Jesus Christ as the God of the Old Testament. But what's significant for us is that our victorious king He's ascending in victory. He has wiped out sin and death and Satan. And rather than receiving tribute from his enemies, he is giving gifts to his subjects. He's given you grace. 
You see, because the thing is, if we're going to have interpersonal relationships that are actually functional, if we're going to, you know, come from different dysfunctional families or being placed into the new family of Jesus and have any chance of having glory, we're going to need grace over the things that Jesus conquered. Grace over our own selfish, for our own selfishness. Grace to conquer the, the ways of the enemy to bring division and disunity. Grace, et cetera, et cetera. Jesus gives us grace. And that's one form of the grace that he gives us. But it, there's another form of grace that he's giving us too. It says that in verse 11, he and also he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry and, and so on and so forth. So the second means of grace is actually that God has appointed gifted people in the church, and I don't mean that in any sort of exclusive way, but in, or, or I should say elitist way, but it's, it's, it's the apostles. It's, and, and certainly in Paul's day and age, you know, without going into all of the, you know, what were the apostles like then, are there apostles today? I mean, certainly there is something significant about this closed set of apostles, those that were with Jesus, that can never be repeated. And those that had the apostolic authority to write the scripture, that could never be repeated. But if we're talking about, you know, ability to go and plant churches, yeah, sure, that can definitely, and it does exist today. Um, and, you know, again, probably need to make a distinction about how the nature of prophets goes, but certainly the gifting could, could exist today. Evangelists having this sort of itinerant ministry and pastors and teachers, God has given grace to these individuals for the church in addition to the individual grace that he's given you. And that leads us to answer, or at least I should think, leads us to answer the question, ask the question, why? What was the purpose of all of this? What is, what is he doing? What did Jesus do? And which, by the way, by Jesus giving apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, he's saying, here I am myself. I am here. This is how I am giving of myself to you presently. It leads us to the final thing, the purpose, the purpose of unity. You see, because we live in a day and age where there is, um, in our Western world, particularly in America, the whole celebrity around leadership, right? So that's not what Paul is getting at and certainly not what Jesus was doing. What's the point? Again, not a end in and of itself, a means to the ends. What is the ends? What's the purpose of unity? Well, in verse 12, we just read it briefly, a part of it, but he says it's, it's 12 and following, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The purpose of unity it's not like the world's unity that becomes this in and of itself and we're all, you know, just sort of we are the world and we can do everything. You know, we can overcome all the pro problems of the world if we just work together. It's not, it's not that. It's for the building up of the body of Jesus. It's, it's, it's recognizing that there is a level of maturity that we have, but he wants to grow us. And we need grace for that. And we need these gifts for that. And... Um, there is a ministry that you have in it. That, in other words, you're not just a passive listener or follower, but you are a contributor. 
because of the grace you've been given. You have a ministry. You have a gift to give to others given to you by the Holy Spirit from Jesus Christ. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, craftiness and deceitful schemes, and so forth. As Paul is telling us his purpose, he's telling us another characteristic of unity. He's saying that, and it's true for every generation, there are these winds of doctrines that will blow against the church. And if there's not maturity there, it blows people away. It brings confusion, it brings distraction, it brings division. And so in the process, what Jesus is doing by the work of his Holy Spirit and by the grace that he's given to the body, he's maturing us. If Pastor John and myself and others, if Christian leaders throughout the body of Christ, if we're doing our job correctly, then there is this white blood cell count in the body that is building up the defenses of the body against false teaching, false doctrine, every wind. Every generation's dealt with it. If you think about the fourth century, the fifth century, the winds of doctrine that were blowing in that day were all about the nature of who Jesus Christ actually is. Some was saying, well, he's not really God, or he was created, or he's higher than the rest of the creation, but then he's still a created being. Others were talking about, well, how many natures does he have? Is he, is he two different people in one body? Is there, you know, all, so on and so forth. Those are the winds of doctrines. In by God's sovereign hand, he, used, he actually used those winds to bring clarity within the body. No, no, no. This is what the Scripture teaches us about the nature of Jesus. He's the second person of the Trinity. We actually, Good Friday, I think it was, when we did the Nicene Creed, we went through an extensive list of declaration of who is the Son of God, right? That came directly from that period where the wind was blowing. Or you think about the Middle Ages, the wind was blowing in the Middle Ages around the idea of how, do, how are we saved? Is it the works that we do? Is it I have to give to the poor and I have to do all of these things and then if I do all of those things and I'm saved? Is it because I'm baptized or if I take communion, that what's, what makes me saved? Those winds of doctrine were blowing and then the Reformation came and brought clarity, and actually pointed back and said, no, this is what the Scripture has taught us, and this is what the early church fathers taught us, and we need to get back to what it says. And we fast forward into the Enlightenment period, you know, certainly starting in the 1700s, but definitely more intensely in the 1800s and beyond, and certainly exponentially intense in this 21st century. The winds of doctrine are blowing around anthropology, what does it mean to be a human? Ideas of sexuality and gender and etc. And Paul is saying that in Christ's church, we are to grow up and to be mature. Now here are some of the challenges as we conclude. I think what's interesting about this text is it presents probably the two main issues of offense within the church and the two main reasons why people get fed up and leave the church. 
people and leaders. How do we deal with that? I mean, we, we live in a present reality where on a national scale and even larger, there are terms to define people who used to believe and now they are doing their own thing. There's ex-evangelicals, for example. There are people who have been in um, churches where there are scandals or toxic leaders and there's, I can't deal with it anymore. How do you do, what, where do you go from there? Well, what's interesting about this whole thing, what Paul is presenting and what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the great calling that we've been given is the thing that might be the original offense is actually the thing that you, you need. And here's what I mean. If you grew up in a family and there's lots of pain and dysfunction in your family, this solution, the healing, comes by being put in another family, the body of Christ. If you had experiences of, of pain under toxic leadership, I would actually say, you know what, I've experienced that. But the answer isn't to abandon everything and throw the baby out with the, 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 the bathwater, but you actually need the church to be healed. You need to lean into the grace that Jesus has given to you and given to the body so that you may be mature, so that you may grow up into the fullness of who he is. How do we lean into that grace? Personally, practically, if there's interpersonal issues, somebody, that person that is annoying, that you keep maybe avoiding, you should pray for him or her. That's been my practice. And I know if once it gets so bad, it's like, man, I can't stop thinking about how this person is, what they're doing. All right, Lord, I'm going to have to start praying for them. First, I'm, this, there, I don't know of another solution. Because you, you have to be humble. You have to be gentle. You have to bear with. And it's not just tolerate, by the way. It says bear with one another in love. And the body is growing up in love. And so pray. Intercede. Corporately, how do we lean into grace? Well, certainly as a corporate body, we need to be praying for our church. And I would say, even beyond that, praying for the church. One of the things that I've, I've noticed is I've met the Christian, some of the Christian leaders here in Champaign-Urbana, pastors and others from different churches. Um, you know, one, by the way, people root for us who are part of other churches, Twin City Bible Church, and I root for them. Uh, we're all one body, right? One body, one spirit, one God and Father of all. What's interesting about, if you would call it this, spiritual uh, background of Champaign-Urbana is that there are a lot of churches in town that started because of church splits. Or if they didn't start because of a church split, they had a mass exodus at one point or other. Does this sound familiar? There's, something, there's not something in the water, but it feels like there's something in the water. And so we need to lean into grace and pray for the church in Champaign-Urbana that we would live out the characteristics of unity, humility, patience, 
gentleness in interpersonal conflicts, whether by way of other people or with different leaders or what have you, bearing with one another in love, receiving the grace that Jesus himself has given to his body, that we might grow up and be mature. I look forward to us continuing uh, this study of what it means to be a glorious church. Let's pray. Invariably, Father, as we talk about this, Lord, there are areas that, um, there's areas of pain, there's areas of questions, there are areas of what about this or I don't know about that. And I thank you, Lord, that you have given us supernatural grace and that, Holy Spirit, you are present among us and in us. And we invite you to minister to our hearts in our own brokenness as we enter it into the church, Lord, that we would recognize, yeah, I have baggage. I have things from my past, whether family or other church experiences or interpersonal experiences. And Lord, let us be a congregation that can walk together in humility, that could be patient with each other, that could be gentle to one another and bear with one another in love. Lord, if we're, in, if we're able to do this, if your church at large is able to do this, that is the greatest evangelistic message to a broken and polarized world. And may it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.